Come on, I've something to tell you. Maybe you've got an approach like that, and somebody has pulled you aside, maybe, and away round the corner where nobody else is there, and then, having got your attention, got you isolated, they tell you some particular message that they feel you need to hear. And that's pretty much the way it is here in the book of Ezekiel and the chapter 18, with this difference. It's not a quiet word in the ear. It's not a silent message. It is a vital message, but it's one that is broadcast through the prophet Ezekiel to the entire nation. Every Hebrew ear needed to hear it. So, what was the message? Well, God was coming, very positive tone here, the Lord God Jehovah, and He was promising that He was going to intervene mightily on behalf of His people. He was going to take on and engage their dreaded enemy, the Babylonians. He was going to battle against those Babylonians to bruise them and batter them and break them. And then for his own people, he was going to bring those people of his into freedom once again. Jerusalem, the place that lay dear to their heart, would once more become a place of power and of prosperity and of peace as well. And let me tell you, whenever that kind of a message was delivered by the prophet Ezekiel, it was sure to get a good audience and to meet with a glad reception. The people were immensely enthusiastic about all of this. Their joyful hearts, they said, we can't get enough of this. Let's take it all on board. Eager minds of theirs, stirred up by this tremendous promise, they were running forward to embrace what God was saying. One man among all the people was particularly glad. In fact, he was over the moon. That was the prophet Ezekiel himself, because Ezekiel up until this point had been given some really tough messages to deliver. Ones that broke his heart. Ones that burdened his soul. Ones that brought tears to his eyes. But here at last, he is coming with a message of hope and of deliverance, and it thrilled his heart to bring it. And yet, a price, a price had to be paid. A condition had to be met. A responsibility had to be fulfilled. Something definite was required from the nation before this grand work that God is promising, this grand work of restoration, would swing into operation. They had to act before God was going to move in this mighty part among them and put the wheels of His promise into quick motion. What did they have to do? The onus on the people was to repent. To repent. An old Scottish preacher, Patrick Furburn, put it like this. While on the one hand, God might confidently be expected to do what He had promised, they, on the other, should not be entitled to look for any blessing if wedded to the love and practice of sin. You've got to turn. You've got to come away from your iniquity and sin. That's your responsibility. And then the promise will bound into view and be unfurled in all of its glory and splendor. And so the people, they had to face up, first of all, to the fact of their own sin, to take 
total responsibility for it, to confess that sin, to forsake that sin. And then God is saying, that will clear the way for my mercy to be made known. And that's what we have in our text tonight in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, and the verse 30 and 31. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his way, saith the Lord God, repent, and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? I'm not going to sketch at length the parallel between Israel back then in Ezekiel's day and where we are as a people and as a country today, because I think you're well capable of understanding where we are today. People are waiting in sin. Many are drowning in it as well. The RSE proposals that we were thinking about here last night are not going to help at all. The enforcing of exclusion zones where people can't even come to silently pray around centers where babies are being murdered is not going to help either. And yet our nation self-righteously is patting itself on the back, refusing to see any of its iniquities, turning a blind eye to all of the morality, all of the immorality, and all the injustice that is turning our country apart. And so repentance is needed on a massive scale. Let's put the question to our hearts tonight. Have I repented? Have I repented and trusted in Christ? Is my heart right with God? So first of all, we have the compulsion for repentance that we have in the text tonight. The compulsion for repentance. And overlook the spelling. It's right on the next page. Coming up right here. The emphasis that the Lord puts upon repentance here in this 18th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, and He puts the emphasis on it not once or twice, but on eight separate occasions in Ezekiel chapter 18. He makes it clear it's absolutely essential. This is non-negotiable. If it has to be repeated so many times in one chapter, God wants us to get the message. Of course, average man in the street will argue otherwise because to him the word repent, it's a bit of a religious joke word. He treats it as a hoot, a bit of a laugh, and some ridiculous thing that, you know, some spiritual crackpot who had the grave misfortune of having less than a full load upstairs, who took great delight in sitting around and concocting a few scary stories in the spare time that he had. He thought it up in a typical art or so of his madness, and so he comes out, and he begins to cry, repent, 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 repentance 
It's part of the cartoonist stark, stalk and trade. And whenever the cartoonist, he wants to paint a picture of some narrow-minded religious bigot, he'll inevitably resort to sketching a man or a woman holding a sandwich board, and he's parading the streets, and his words on that board like, turn or burn, flee from the wrath to come, repent or ruin, and those words are scrawled across his board, but... Let them jest or ridicule the just and holy requirement of God to every sinner that all of those sinners need to repent. Let them ridicule and mock that if they want. The inescapable truth of the matter is this. You only have to read the Bible with an inquiring, with an open, with an honest mind to see that repentance unto life is one of the most prominent subjects in it. It's one subject, therefore, all of us are obliged to consider seriously, devote our energy to, and study it out carefully. The fact is this. While the skeptic doesn't see the need for it, while the careless doesn't want to know about it, while the confused doesn't have a clue how to get round to doing it, the word repent appears in our English Bible 44 times. The word repentance, 26 times. The word repented, 32 times. Other variations of the same term, eight times adding up, if I'm not incorrect, to 110 mentions. And that's not counting those many occasions when the eternal God gives us equivalent commands. For example, he will say, return unto me. And he's meaning repentance. He will say, confess or forsake your sins. And again, he's meaning repentance. And many occasions in Scripture see those terms used. How can the majority of the inhabitants of this world and the majority of people in Belfast choose to insult or ignore this doctrine that God has underlined so emphatically? in his word. It's 1500 BC, and we have Job. And what subject is he talking about in Job 42 and 6? Wherefore, he said, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's 600 BC, coming closer to our time, but not by a terrible lot, and we're in Ezekiel. The passage we read tonight, chapter 18, the verse 30 to 32, what is God saying there? In verse 30, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions. And then again in verse 32, he says, turn yourselves. That's another phrase that means repent or about turn. I remember old Reverend John Wiley. Whenever he preached on the subject of repentance, he said, it's actually a military term. It's like you're on the parade ground, and you're going one direction, and then the sergeant major shouts out, about turn, and you swivel right around. That, he said, is what God means by repentance. And of course, he was right. And we move closer to our time, well, within 2,000 years, it's A.D. 30, 
And we have John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verse 1 and 2. We find the introduction that we get to John the Baptist. What is our introduction? What is his message? Right from the word go. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our Lord Jesus Christ, how did he begin his ministry? With what words did he address the people in his first sermon? Well, we have it in Mark 1 and the verse 15 that we're told there. Our Lord Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. He does it again in Mark 2 and the verse 17, as well as Mark 1 and 15. I think of the time when the inner, the inner circle of disciples, they were going out and they were beginning their public ministries. So they're being launched in the world here, bringing the message of Christ. And what are we told they did in Mark 6 and 12? And they went out and preached that men should repent. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we have the record of that. 3,000 souls were brought into the kingdom of love and grace in that one day. And what kind of a message were they listening to? Well, Peter again hit the big note. Repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gets up on the Mars Hill and he's surrounded by all of the educated men of his day. They were told they're called the Epicureans and the Stoics, people that loved to hear a new thing. They wanted to get into philosophy and they couldn't get enough of the reasoning of men. And Paul, he just stands in the middle of them and bold as a lion, preaches like he always did. But what note did he hit? Repentance toward God right in the top of Mars Hill. So make no mistake about it. Repentance, it's serious business. It's vital. It's essential. It's crucial. It's urgent. I love to read the Puritans. William Dyer, famous old Puritan preacher, said, and it's a classic statement, there is no going to the fair haven of glory, that's his description of heaven, there's no going to the fair haven of glory without sailing through the narrow street of repentance. Simply stated, if there is no repentance, then there will be ruin. Punishment will fall in the absence of penitence. It'll be crashing, it'll be crushing, it'll be condemning as well. No wonder, no wonder God pushed Ezekiel out and he pressed upon his heart you preach repentance to the nation here. And no surprise I'm calling on you if you're outside of Christ and haven't repented. No surprise I'm calling on you tonight to repent because it's so vital. The compulsion for the Bible doctrine of repentance, not only that, the components of this Bible doctrine of repentance, the components You'll probably find in many pulpits today, even those that are evangelical with a very small, minute, decreasing-sized E, evangelical, that the word repentance rarely pops up. And so, because of that, it's a word that's very much misunderstood. And most people's opinion of what it means to repent is terribly inadequate. Some imagine all it is is to come along and admit your sin. Others will tell you it'll be, yes, squeezing out a tear or two here and there because of that sin. It means much, much more than that. 
the Westminster Larger Catechism. And if you're in Sunday school, it'll be the shorter catechism that you'll be learning there, but here's the bigger version, essentially, of the same thing. Larger catechism, question 76, it asks, what is repentance unto life? And we have this colossal answer. It's brilliant, though. And in reading this old document, drafted in the 1600s, you need to spend a lot of time and meditate and dissect and break up the phrases and work your way through the sentences. But we'll read it through once here. Repentance unto life is what? A saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sense and sight, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension or understanding of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins, as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. That is quite a definition. Ultimately, as a study document, the catechism is hard to beat, and the larger one in particular. But we're going to break it down and trace out three leading elements that we have in the definition here. And the first one Repentance involves a realization of sin. The literal meaning of repentance is after wit or after wisdom. And many times you do something or you say something in life and then you go down the road and maybe you're driving in the car or you're riding on your bicycle and you think, I should not have said that. That was a very foolish thing to do. And you would love right then to be able to just, with a big elastic band, pull those words that you've spoken back in again and be able to act as if they'd never been uttered. After wit or after wisdom at work. And what it is in repentance is this. We seriously reflect on what we've done. And we have a real change of mind about those things that we have done. We read tonight in the book of Matthew, the chapter 21, the verse 28 and 29, the story of two sons. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. And I think that's as plain a picture as you'll get of what it is to repent. This first son's, his initial reaction was, Oh no, father demanding this? Absolutely no way. I'm not in for that. I'm not doing it. No chance. But then he thought it over in his mind, and having thought it over, he changed his mind, and he did exactly what he had been in the first place asked to do. He recognized, you see, my father has a right to command me to do this. I have a responsibility to obey my father, and so that is the starting point in genuine repentance. After wisdom change of mind. The person who approaches Christ in repentance then recognizes, I have been wrong. 
I've been traveling the wrong road, the road of sin and rebellion and bitterness, that I'm a complete and utter sinner in the eyes of an infinitely, immeasurably holy God. I'm in a terrible position before him. And he accepts, therefore, the voice and the verdict of Scripture, such as we have in Romans 3, 10 and 23. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They go away back into the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 64 and 6, and they say, oh, there's a picture of me as well. And it's not very appealing at all. But we all are as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, the things that we think are good, are as filthy rags. And we all do fear as a leaf. And our iniquities or sins, like the wind, have taken us away. And what we do then is, we look to the perfect character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And looking at his perfect character, we cry out, How have I been refusing his grace? How have I been turning my back on his offer of love and mercy? He looks to the law of God and looking at that law, he thinks I've broken this part of the law and that part of the law. Oh, I've broken so much of God's law, not only in deed, also in spirit. I have offended so many times. He looks to the sacrifice on Calvary and he sees the Savior dying, bleeding his life away. His soul is being stirred within him now, and he says he was, like the hymn that he sang tonight, I saw one hanging on a tree. He hadn't noticed it before. In agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And as he looks at Calvary, he says, you know something? He was crucified for me. He bore my sins. He took my burden. He carried my woe. He took all of my condemnation. He's enduring there on that cross, my eternal hell. And he stands in amazement and says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What a terrible wretch I've been to reject him. That's the first stage of repentance. When the Holy Spirit brings us to see things as we have never seen them before, and he brings us now to see them as they really are, And he's working in our mind and working upon our heart. And he's sending the light of truth in there, flashing into our minds, allowing us to see things from an entirely different point of view. And we realize our past folly. And we wake up to the wickedness of our present sin. And we cry out, what a fool I've been so many years I've lived in the world. And yet up until this moment in time, I've never really realized what true life is all about. My past has been a wasted existence. Everything has been in vain. All has been pointless. All has been lost. All I've ever done is to get all of my faculties and stretch them to run after sin. And what I'm really doing is fanning up the flames for a terrible, endless eternity. And I pray, God, that he will open our eyes to this first vital element in real repentance. It's not a pleasant experience, but it is one that's totally necessary. And then a second element in this repentance, and that's delving back into the larger catechism, it's not only a realization of sin, it's also a regret for sin, a feeling of sorrow. 
that's not just a surface level sorry, but it's coming from deep down in the soul. Genuine sorrow. How do I illustrate that? Well, the Bible does it for me in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Paul is writing and he talks about repentance being accompanied by signs of regret. And he puts it like this, for godly sorrow, godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but, other side of the coin, the sorrow of the world worketh death. So Paul's talking about two kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. One's fact, the other's fake. One's proper, the other's pretended. One's true, the other's just trumped up for the occasion. A few hours, and I'm illustrating here, a few hours before our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, Peter promised him, I'll never disown you. Even if everybody else does, I will not. Yet when he found himself in a corner, backed up against the wall, put under pressure, he did the very thing that he had vowed he wouldn't do. He betrayed his master. And what do we read? We read in Matthew 26, verse 74 and 75, Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, denying Christ. And immediately the cock crew, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crew, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out. And here are the key words. And wept bitterly. Wept bitterly. That was real, not fake sorrow, coming from the heart. One preacher found children on an occasion, and they were reading from the Roman Catholic Douay version of the New Testament, and he put up a problem to them. He turned to a passage that in the Douay version is translated, do penance. But in our English Bible, it's not translated do penance at all, because the proper translation is repent. And they asked those children, do you know the difference between doing penance and repenting? They were silent. I guess they'd never been asked that question before. But then a young girl responded and said, is it not this, sir? Judas did penance. For after he had betrayed the Lord with a kiss, he even died and hanged himself, he did penance. But Peter, after his denial of Jesus, he repented, for he went out and wept bitterly. Let me make it clear. It isn't an unbending rule that tears must flow copiously. They're likely to come at some time, whether before or after the moment of salvation. And yet the fact remains, you don't have to display mere tears in order to be saved. The hymn writer said quite accurately, works can never save you. Tears in themselves cannot atone. But one thing is certain, you can't repent truly unless you do regret your sins and regret them deeply. Like the prodigal son. In Luke 15, 21, he exclaimed, the son said unto him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And I think you can get the, the pathos dripping from his words. These were words of sorrow and terms of regret and of God should squeeze those out of our hearts. It'll be a painful experience, but an incredibly blessed one. So we have the realization of sin, regret for sin. The third element or component in it is a repudiation. A repudiation of sin. That's turning your back on. Denouncing and renouncing it. And the words that we have most often used for repent in the Bible, they give us this basic idea of a change of mind. That includes realization of sin. That includes regret for sin. But it means more than that. It reaches out further to involve a fixed, definite purpose of heart to forsake sin, turn her back upon it, and now follow the Savior. To undergo this change of mind will result in a change of direction in the way that we live. D.L. Moody, famous American evangelist, used this illustration to explain for his hearers what repentance was all about. He said, suppose I were to go down to, I want to go down to Boston tonight. And I go down to the Union Depot, the train station, and I say to the man that I see there, can you tell me, is this train going to Boston? And the man says, yes, it is. So I go and I get on board the train that's going to Boston, and then Mr. Dodge, a family friend, comes along and he says, where are you going? And I, D.L. Moody, say, well, I'm going to Boston. Mr. Dodge says, well, you're on the wrong train. That train that you're on is actually going to Albany. But, Mr. Dodge, I'm quite sure I'm right. You know, I asked a railroad man out there, and he told me this was the train going to Boston. Mr. Dodge replied, Moody, I know all about these trains. I've lived here for 40 years. I've been on them nearly every day. I go up and down on the trains all the time. You're not on the train for Boston. You're on the one for Albany. And Moody says, at last, Mr. Dodge convinces me that I am on the wrong train. That's conviction, not conversion. If I don't remain on the train, if I get out of the train that's going to Albany and get onto the other train that is going to Boston, then that is repentance to change trains. Go in a different direction. That is repentance. Palmermont said, repentance without amendment is like continual pumping in a ship without stopping the leaks. The ship's going down because of a multitude of leaks. They're bailing the water out. But as quickly as they bail it out, so it comes in through the leaks. They don't save themselves. And the words of our text here in Ezekiel 18, the verse 30 and 31, they carry this plain implication. Repentance has to involve a change of direction. The heart broken for sin. The life being broken from sin. Therefore, I will judge you, the Lord says, O house of Israel, everyone according to his way, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? The compulsion for repentance, the components of repentance 
And then finally and quickly, the consequences from repentance. I should have consequence because we are going to mention one. What is the result of repentance? We're talking about the chief result. It's life. It's life. Ezekiel 18 and 30 says, Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions. What will be the consequence? So, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Repentance, turning around, keeps us from ruin. In Moody's illustration, gets us where we need to go, to Boston, not to Albany. Ezekiel 18 to verse 32, two verses on. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves, repent, and live ye. So repentance brings you and I into life. That's real life. That's substantial life. That's spiritual life. That's life that is eternal. That's life as God defines it. This is something you and I cannot afford to be careless about or casual over. Here's something we dare not ignore or neglect or postpone. It was Dr. Mason who said, if we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent off and a day less to repent in. And maybe you're thinking, and have been thinking for a while, I need to get this whole matter sorted out. I need to get right with God. I know to do that, I need to repent of sin and trust in Christ. But another time, if we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Unconverted one in this meeting, the Lord of heaven urges us to see your sin, to sorrow over it, to determine to leave it, and he does so now, in time. This command to repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, you'll never hear it after you die. When your soul has already dropped down into the everlasting burnings of hell, too late to try and address the issue now. On that day, God will refuse to hear our wheels of remorse. And as he says in Hosea 13 and 14, repentance then shall be hid from mine eyes. And so the important thing is, come to him today. Rise up and call on his name. Confess and forsake your sin. Repent without delay. You cannot repent too soon because none of us know when it will be too late. Repent. Repent. And steer yourself by God's grace and mighty spirit away from ruin. We'll sing in closing hymn 256 or part of the hymn 256 on the page 279 if you're using a book. Where will you spend eternity? We have a couple of verses in this hymn that focus on the topic we've been thinking about, repentance. 
Where will you spend eternity? This question comes to you and me. Tell me, what shall your answer be? Where will you spend eternity? We're going to sing the verses that relate directly to repentance, verse 2, and also verse 4. Standing, please, as we sing verse 2 and verse 4. Father, we pray that the seriousness of this hour will rest upon us and will travel with us, and that we will get right for heaven tonight and be in time, and will repent as we know Christ and all of Scripture demands we do, because without repentance we shall all likewise perish. Come and speak to hearts, do us good, save souls and lives for that blessed eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.